Bible this morning and find Exodus chapter 2. There's notes in your bulletin if you like to follow along with what we're going to look at this morning. It's always a challenging task to preach when you can smell food down the hallway. So we'll try to get through this this morning. We have kids in with us this morning. We have babies in with us this morning. We don't have nursery care uh, because we didn't have Sunday school and people are dropping off food. So they're going to make noise. I'm just going to go ahead and predict it right now. They're going to make some noise and that's perfectly fine. And uh, we can live with that. Nobody's going to roll their eyes at you or sigh or anything like that. And uh, at the end of the service, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And parents, you've got kids in here. And I know kids are curious about that when uh, the crackers come by or the juice comes by. And uh, I know we're going to be singing a little bit. There's going to be some music. But parents, feel free to talk to your kids during that time. Explain to them what we're doing. You could look at Scripture with them. You could read uh, Exodus 12 with them and the Passover. You could read Luke 22 with them and the the Scriptures that we're going to read. Feel free to talk to your kids and uh, explain to them what's going on and why we do that. This morning we're going to wrap up Exodus chapter 2. And I want to start with just a couple of details. Things I want to mention. I want you to know that I'm aware of them. I want to just sort of put them out on the table. But they're not things we're really going to focus on this morning. And so the first thing, I want you to see the overall timeline of Moses' life. He spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, 40 years in the wilderness after the exodus with the people walking around. He died at 120 years old. You can look up all the scriptures and piece all that together and find the verses and how that fits together in the biblical timeline. Hollywood gets a little bit antsy at this point. When Hollywood makes a movie about Moses and the exodus, they always try to fill in some of the gaps like what was it like for Moses growing up in the royal family of Egypt? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but Hollywood likes to speculate about that. Uh, Hollywood likes to, to sort of think about how did Moses learn that he was a Hebrew? When did he learn that? It's always uh, sort of an issue for families with adoptive kids, and Hollywood puts different spins on that. TV puts different spins on that. The Bible really doesn't describe it. We just know that at a certain point in his adult life, he did know that he was Hebrew. Hollywood likes to speculate, was there a, a power struggle within the royal family? Was, was it uh, Moses against his, his stepbrother or Moses against the Pharaoh that raised him? And again, that there's just not any of those details in the Bible. We do know he spent a third of his life in Egypt, a third in Midian, and a third in the desert. Another thing I want you to know is that the Midianites, Moses in the verses we're about to read, he runs away and he, he lives in Midian, which really means he lives amongst the Midianites. The Midianites were descendants of Abraham. And you can look up the reference here. Let me just sort of describe to you what happened. You remember Abraham, the patriarch, was married to a woman named Sarah. And they had a son named Isaac. Well, later in life, there's this interesting story Later in Abraham's life, Sarah has died, his son Isaac is grown up and already married, and Abraham takes a new wife. He marries another woman, and her name is Keturah, and they have six sons together. After not being able to have all these children, he has all these sons with this woman, and then at the end of Abraham's life, when he knows he's about to die, he gives presents to Keturah and all her sons and sends them away into the east. And then he gives everything else that he has to his son Isaac. One of those six sons from a marriage later in Abraham's life was a young man named Midian. 
And Midian goes on to father this people group, the Midianites. And that fits with the promises that God made to Abraham where he said, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Many peoples and many nations will come from you. So we're kind of coming up on Christmas. Uh, Chevy Chase and the Christmas vacation is going to be on TV when Cousin Eddie comes rolling up in the, the RV. Well, that's kind of what it was like when Abraham came rolling up to the Midianites. They were like, oh, Cousin Abraham, or Moses, excuse me, Cousin Moses, rolling in here. And so he was sort of visiting long-lost cousins there. Now, one last thing I want to mention, just if you're really cantankerous and you want to argue about this later, we can really just duke it out and have it out. But there's debate, scholarly debate, about Reuel, Jethro, and Hobab. And you can look the verses up. All three of these men are called Moses' father-in-law. One group of scholars says, this is one man. And he has three different names. Reuel actually means friend of God. And so that's like a nickname. And then he's got a couple other names. It's all talking about the same person. Another group of scholars says, no, 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 no. You got uh, Reuel and Jethro. That's the same person. But Hobab is somebody different. And then you got a whole different group of scholars over here that say they're three entirely different people. You can sort of split the difference on what you want to vote on there. It's really not going to change the way we approach the book of Exodus. But some of you, I know some of you, you're going to come to me if I don't mention this. And you're going to say, did you know that this is, and you're going to tell me your view. And I'm going to say, well, you know, that's debated. You can pick the view that you want to pick and we can argue about it. It really doesn't change the way we approach Exodus. And it certainly doesn't change the way that we approach this passage and the big idea. Here it is. It's really, really simple. God was about to use Moses to get Israel out of Egypt, but first he wanted to get Egypt out of Moses. He is going to use Moses to bring the people out, but before he does that, he wants to get Egypt out of Moses' heart. And if you have your Bible open, just jump ahead and look at chapter 2, verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out. He went out. If you like to make notes in your Bible, you should underline those two words. He went out. Because in Hebrew, it's the word that we would translate exodus. A going out. A leaving. A departure. And right here, Moses, or the the author of Exodus, whoever you think that is, I think it is Moses, is giving you a clue. And he's saying to you, this is like Moses' own personal exodus before he leads the people out. And it's not so much a matter of geography but it's a matter of his heart and what was at the center of his heart. And you see God working in Moses' heart throughout this passage. So look in the text. We're going to read Exodus 2, verse 11, all the way to 24, and then we'll pray, and then we'll try to make sense of what we've read. The Word of God says this, Exodus 2, 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. 
Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom, give us understanding, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to receive what we see in this final section of Exodus 2. Father, we think about this ancient story and we pray that it would be real to us, that it would have authority over our lives as as we see how you interact with your people and we think about how you've saved your people, Father. Give us eyes to see the truth and give us eyes to see the gospel, even in this ancient, ancient Old Testament story. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Introduce you up on the screen to a guy named Philip Riken. He's a former Presbyterian pastor. He is currently the president of Wheaton College in Illinois. And uh, that's a pretty nice picture. He looks like a nice guy, right? Looks very friendly. He wrote a commentary on the book of Exodus. And check out the first words in the chapter of what we're looking at here. Have you ever wanted to kill somebody? That's how he starts off the chapter on this passage. Have you ever wanted to kill somebody? I am not going to ask for a show of hands this morning to answer that question. We'll just keep that between you and God. If you have, you can probably relate to Moses in this passage. We don't know exactly what was going on in his head and his heart and the, the interaction between his real parents, his birth parents, his adopted parents, and how all of that was sorted out. But you see Moses in this passage murders a man. And he tries to cover it up. And it's one example, when you read through the book of Exodus, of the brilliant writing and really the honest writing. Moses is not presented in this book as a hero, like you want to be exactly like Moses. Because there's some things said about Moses that are really, really not flattering. At the same time, he's not presented as the villain. He's not the bad guy. He's not the guy you love to hate or live to hate. He's just kind of presented like you and me, like a real person, somebody who loves the Lord and and wants to follow the Lord but struggles with things in different areas of his life. He's very, very relatable. And so that's going to lead us to the first question we want to ask this morning. What do these verses teach me about Moses? What can I learn from the man Moses? And then the second question is going to be, what do these verses teach me about God. So question one, what do these verses teach me about Moses? First idea is this, he took courageous action to help oppressed people. And I think we would all put that in the positive column for Moses. 
He took courageous action to help people who were oppressed. He did it in Egypt when he saw this Egyptian beating one of his people. He did something about it. We may not condone what he did, but we at least say he didn't just sit back and watch injustice. When he ends up in Midian, there's sort of a, the implication from the text, I think, that, that Reuel knows that his daughters are going to be bullied by the shepherds at the well. I think he knows it's going to happen. He's used to it happening. Because what does he ask them? Why'd you get back so soon? In other words, he knows what the routine is. His daughters go to the well, they pull the water, the shepherds show up, they drink the water, and then they have to do the whole thing over again. He knows this is, this is the process, we do it all the time, and he seems to maybe be a little bit content with this, or at least powerful to, uh, powerless to do anything about it. Well, Moses shows up and he says, I'm not just going to stand by while you guys bully these women. He does something about it. It kind of makes me think of the, the reality TV shows. You see them, seems like I always see them on Sunday night or Saturday night on network TV where they have a hidden camera and they show somebody being really rude to another person or maybe pretending like they're attacking another person and they're videoing other people to see what they're going to do, right? And if you've watched any of those shows, you know most people are pretty passive, Most people may stop and look and their eyes get as big as saucers, but they don't do anything to help. They don't do anything to to right a wrong. And that may be a silly, trivial example that we see on TV, but what you see in Moses' life is that he wasn't passive. And when people needed someone to stand up for them, Moses was willing to do that. And let's just throw the detail in. Moses must have been a pretty tough dude, right? He sees this Egyptian beaten on a Hebrew, and he just takes him out and digs a grave for him. Then he shows up in Midian. We don't know how many shepherds there are, but there's shepherds plural, which means there's at least two of them. You know he's outnumbered. And rather than hang back and say, well, you know, maybe I'll wait till some of my buddies show up, or hey, I don't know if I can take, he just jumps right in. And I'll just point out to you, when the text says that he drove them away in verse 17, that's not talking about he loaded them up in his Honda and drove them away. That's talking about there was a fight. Like there was a conflict. Somebody was throwing haymakers. People were in headlocks. Somebody got a bloody, I mean, it was, it was a fight. And Moses takes on this group of shepherds and he stands up for people. And you see this characteristic throughout his life. He stands up for people who are oppressed, we would say, well, that's a good thing. Here's another good thing. Moses chose mistreatment with the people of God over the fleeting pleasures of sin. And this basically comes straight out of Hebrews 11. You should look it up later. The gist of it is this. He refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter, and he intentionally chose to be mistreated of Israel rather than enjoying the wealth of Egypt and the fleeting pleasures of sin. Like at some point in his life, he made a decision. He knew who he was ethnically. He, he knew his life story, and he said, rather than hang on to all the privilege I have in Egypt, I'm going to choose to identify with the Hebrew slaves. Now, I'm going to give you something that's not in the Bible, so you just take this with a grain of salt, okay? I don't do this very often because our authority is Scripture. I just want to get you thinking about what did it look like when he chose to be mistreated rather than to enjoy the riches of Egypt. There's a historian named Josephus. Some of you have heard of this guy. He was a Jewish historian. He lived about 2,000 years ago. And he writes about all sorts of stuff from 
his current time, which we would call like New Testament times, and also going back into Old Testament times. Now, this is not in the Bible, but this is Josephus. Josephus says the Pharaoh who gave the order to kill all the Hebrew babies. Remember that Pharaoh? He said, kill all, throw all the babies in the Nile. Josephus says that Pharaoh only had one child, and it was a daughter. He had no male heir. He had a female daughter. Josephus also says that female daughter, he gives us her name. We don't know if it's true or not. He gives us her name, and he says, this female daughter of Pharaoh, you know her as the one who picked Moses up out of the river, had no children of her own. Meaning, if you connect those dots, that the baby she pulls out of the river is her only child, meaning he's the heir to the throne of Egypt. He's next in line to be Pharaoh when the current Pharaoh dies. Now, that's not in the Bible. I'm just giving you an example of what did it possibly look like when Moses made the choice, rather than enjoy the wealth and the privilege of Egypt, I'm going to choose, Hebrews 11 says, he says, I'm going to choose to be mistreated with the people of God. You wonder, when he made that decision, did they threaten him? Did they try to buy him off? Did they offer him some sort of power or authority or succession plan or prestige or title or money? We have no idea. But the Bible says there was wealth and privilege and comfort right at his fingertips. Things that we pursue almost with no restraint. And Moses gave all of that up and he chose to be mistreated with the people of God. It was a good decision. Third, now we're moving out of the positive category and we're just going to be honest about Moses. He tried to rescue Israel on his own power. Tried to rescue the Hebrews on his own power. Think about some of the things Moses knew. He knew at this point that he was a Hebrew. The passage we read several times says he went out to his people. He knew these are my people and he's going out and he's identifying with them. If he knows that he's one of the Hebrews, he's probably talked to them and he's learned their history and he's learned their traditions and he's heard the promises that God made to these people. I think it's safe to say he knows the promise of Genesis 15 when God said to Abraham many, many years earlier, you and your nation, you people, you, you Hebrews, you Israelites, you're going to be taken into a foreign land. You're going to be oppressed for 400 years. And at the end of that, I'm going to bring judgment on that nation. And I'm going to bring you out with great possessions back to this land. Moses knew that promise. And he knew the timeline. He could count. And he's adding it up in his head. And he's saying, wait a minute, 400 years. God said 400 years. And these people, my people, our people are coming out of the land. He said, it's time to go. We're at the 400-year mark. And he lashes out against this Egyptian. It's not just that he wanted to defend a slave. That's part of it. It's also that he thought God was going to use him to save Israel. You're saying, I don't know if you, if you can pull that out of Exodus, but look what we read in Acts chapter 7. There's a man named Stephen talking about Moses, and he says, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. That's New Testament commentary on what we're reading in the book of Exodus. 
Moses kills this Egyptian thinking, it's time to go, and these people are going to know the promise, and they're going to see me kill this Egyptian, and it's time to lead a slave revolt. And Stephen says they didn't understand. Here's what they did understand. A dead Egyptian taskmaster would eventually be found, and that meant trouble for Hebrew slaves. Somebody's going to have to pay for that Egyptian man buried in the sand. They knew the cruelty and the vengeance of Egypt. And Pharaoh, on his part, can't just ignore it. He's got to do something. Here's a member of his own household siding with the slaves, committing treason, in effect, by murdering one of his own people. Moses' mind in all of this is that he's ready for God to use him. He thinks, Acts 7.24, that God is going to bring salvation by his hand. He thinks that with his own power, he can lead this exodus. And he has to learn that that's not the way it's going to work. Last idea about Moses is this. He spent 80 years preparing for the exodus. 80 years preparing for the exodus. In the grand scheme of things, God had one big job for Moses for his whole life. I want you to lead these people out, and I want you to lead them right up to the promised land. That's the one big thing I want you to do with your life, Moses. And it took 80 years to prepare him for that task. I don't know what your life situation is, if it's close to that of Moses or if it's very different from that of Moses. But God has something for you to do. And he will prepare you to do it. And I think the way that he's going to prepare you is not unlike the way that he prepared Moses. I try not to be real preachy and pastory and Southern Baptist old school pastoring, but I got a a little alliteration for you, okay? This is how God's going to prepare you for what he has for you to do. He's going to use your education, your location, your vocation, and your relations. Those are the things he used in Moses' life to prepare him to lead the people out. And I think it's the same way he's going to prepare you to do the one thing or the multiple things that he has for you to do. His education. The book of Acts says, Acts 7.22, that Moses grew up learning all the wisdom of Egypt. He was highly literate, highly educated, and God didn't waste that. He used this educated man highly educated man to write what we call the law or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. would have been very hard for an uneducated man to do that, but Moses was educated, and God used that. He used his location. He takes him to Midian of all places. And when you think about Midian, it's just sort of the middle of nowhere, and you just have to stop and remind yourself, God doesn't wing it when it comes to your location. There are no accidents There's nothing that's just coincidence. The book of Acts tells us he determines the times and the seasons and the places where all people live and dwell and have their life. He's in control of that. He's sovereign over that. And he's using that to prepare you for what it is he has you to do. Your vocation. He used that for Moses. If you look at Exodus 3.1, just to jump ahead a a verse, it says Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. He's a shepherd. You remember what his ancestors did when they first moved to Egypt? They were shepherds. And do you remember what the Egyptians thought about shepherds? They hated them. They despised shepherds. 
They thought it was lowly and undignified and disgusting. And here God takes Moses, raised in, as an Egyptian, takes him out into the middle of nowhere and gives him one of the jobs that he would have been raised to hate. You think he might be teaching Moses a little bit of humility? Sit out here in the wilderness with sheep and goats and take care of them. You need to learn a little bit of humility because one of these days I'm going to need you to lead my people. And just spoiler alert, they're as dumb as sheep. So get ready. He used his relations, meaning his family. As a husband, he had to learn conflict resolution. Amen? He had to learn how to say, I'm sorry. As a father, he had to learn how to lead and how to teach. Right? When he writes later, many, many years later, when he writes to moms and dads that you are to teach your kids when you're going in the way and when you're walking in the market and when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night and you don't waste any opportunity to put these things before your kids, he's looking back and he's learned how to do that as a, as a father. As a son-in-law, he had to learn how to submit. He had to learn how to take orders, not just to be the boss, but to be a good employee. God uses all of these relations in his life while he's in Midian to prepare him to lead the people. Listen, God has something for you to do. It may not be as grand and as great as leading his people out of Egypt, but it's important in his eyes, and he will prepare you to do the thing or the things that he has for you to do. And I think these are some of the ways that he'll prepare you. Let's move on to the real hero of the story. Okay? You start reading through the end of Exodus 2. Moses is the subject of all the verbs at the beginning. But you come down to verse 23 and 24 and 25, and all of a sudden God is the subject of most of the verbs. God begins to take center stage for the first time in this story. And so the question is, what do these verses teach me about God? Several ideas. Several ideas. Number one, God hears all, sees all, and knows all. He hears all, sees all, and knows all. It didn't feel like that was true to the Hebrews. They didn't feel like God was listening to them. They didn't feel like God knew what was happening to them. They didn't feel like God saw the oppression that they were under. But God heard it, and he saw it, and he knew it. All of it. In your life, it's just as true as it was in Exodus 2. There's times in your life where you say, I don't think God's paying attention. I don't think he hears me. I don't think he sees. I don't think he knows what I'm going through. And you just got to go back and preach to yourself a little bit and say, he knows and he sees and he hears. He is aware of all of the things that are happening to me and nothing escapes his notice. Number two, he keeps his covenant promises, his covenant promises. We read here that the, the people of Israel groaned, verse 23, and their groan rose. This cry for help rose up to the Lord, and God responded to that. But we need to be really clear about something. The reason God responded was not just that their groaning was so pitiful. The reason God responded, verse 24, is that he remembered his covenant with Abraham. When God remembers things, it's not like you and me remembering things. 
we tend to be forgetful. Just take names, for example. You look around the room and you recognize a lot of the faces, people sitting around you. I look around the room and I think almost all the faces, not all, but almost all the faces I recognize. But if you just sat me down and said, write everyone's name down or greet everyone by name, I'd think, oh man, I can't remember. So I say, hey, buddy. Hey, my friend, how are you? You do the same thing. God doesn't ever have those moments where he says, oh, what, 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 what was it that I promised Abraham? Did I write that on a sticky note somewhere? Where did I put that? Did I write that in my day planner? He never has one of those moments where the light bulb goes off. The light bulb, if we want to use that metaphor, is always on. And when the Bible says God remembers, it's not like you and I remembering. When the Bible says God remembers, what it's saying is he's about to take action. And the specific thing that he remembers here is not that the people are miserable. Just put a mental note here, write it in your Bible, write it on your notes somewhere. He's not remembering how miserable the people are. That's not what moves him to action. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Covenant's not a word we use a whole lot, but it's a word we really need to understand. And I'm kind of simple-minded, so this is the best place I can go to, uh, to find help, is a children's Bible by a lady named Sally Lloyd-Jones. This is her definition of covenant. I think it's spot on. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what he remembers Not in the sense of the light bulb going on and he had forgotten it, but this is God saying to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm setting my love on you and nothing's going to change that. It's never going to end. I know that you're stiff-necked, hard-hearted people, but nothing will change it. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And Exodus 2 says that's what God remembers. Yes, the people are groaning and they're pitiful and they need help. But what God remembers is I made a promise to these people, a covenant, and I'm not going to break it. Because if I break it, it makes me look bad. He always keeps his promises, he always keeps his covenant. Number three, God wanted to get credit for the exodus. He doesn't want Moses to get the credit. You say, well, that's kind of selfish. God can be selfish. You can't. God wants the glory. It's okay for God to want the glory. It's not okay for you to want the glory because you're not God. And in the Exodus, God wants all the credit, or you could say he wants all the glory. He wants people not to say, look at that great man Moses who led a revolt of slaves, which is basically what Hollywood does in all the movies, right? They put Moses up on this pedestal as some great liberator. It's not about Moses. And God's chopping him off the pedestal right here. Moses says, look, I'm ready. I know the promise. You're going to use me. I'm a unique person. I grew up Egyptian, but I'm really Hebrew. I'm the guy. Moses figures the plan out. And he says, I'm going to kill this Egyptian, and we're going to get the whole thing kicked off. And God says, that's not the plan. Why don't you take a 40-year time out in Midian, and then we'll talk about the plan. Because my plan doesn't involve you being the hero of anything. My plan involves Egypt seeing how great I am and Israel seeing how great I am 
and knowing that it was no mere man who delivered them from Egypt, but it was the Lord, the one true God who saved his people. He wants the credit. Last idea is this. God eventually sent someone greater than Moses, to which we say, praise God. Praise God. Look, Israel needed more than just rescue from Egypt. Israel needed to be rescued from Israel. And I don't mean the piece of land that we would call Israel. I mean from themselves. And you get to the end of the story of Moses and you realize Moses got them out of the land or he led them out of the land, but he can't get the land out of them. He can't get Egypt and idolatry and wickedness and sin out of the hearts of the people. They need someone greater. And God sent someone greater. Think about the parallels here. Moses gives up the wealth of Egypt to suffer with his people. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus gives up the wealth of heaven to come and be a servant. The Bible says that Moses goes to his own people and he thinks they're going to realize that I'm bringing them deliverance and they don't understand it. They reject him. The Bible says in John 1 that the light of the world came into the world and he took on flesh and he came to his own people and his own people rejected him. They didn't get it. Think about the parallel of John 10. Moses spends 40 years as a shepherd of sheep before he spends 40 years as a shepherd of people. And it's no coincidence that Jesus comes along in John chapter 10 and he says, I am the good shepherd. And I'm different than the other shepherds because the good shepherd is going to lay his life down for the sheep. I'm going to give my life to get sin out of your heart. Meaning I'm not just saving you from chains and I'm not just saving you from slavery and I'm not just saving you from a foreign country. I'm saving you from you. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. That's what we're remembering when we pass around the plates and we have the little cracker and we drink the little cup. We're remembering and we're celebrating what God has done to save his people through Jesus. It's not about any one of us being the hero of the story. It's about God being the hero of the story and sending Jesus to save us. We're remembering when we take of the bread and we take of the cup, God sees and God hears and God knows And thank God he remembers his covenant. Look, in just a minute, we'll read from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus sits down with his disciples when he establishes the Lord's Supper for the first time. And he says, this is a new covenant in my blood. The exact same word, bells and whistles ought to be going off saying, wait a minute, I've heard that before. That's his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And it's sealed, not just with the blood of lambs over the door in the Passover, but it's sealed with the blood of God's son, Jesus Christ. God's not going to forget that. God's not going to fail to remember that. He sees and he hears and he knows and he remembers the covenant that he made with his people through Jesus. So we're going to pass the elements around in just a minute. And if you're a follower of Jesus... If you trust in Jesus alone for salvation and you've obeyed his command to be baptized, we'd love for you to celebrate with us. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you're not someone who trusts in Jesus for salvation, we just ask, let the elements pass by and take a few minutes to think about your relationship with God. 
Think a few minutes to think about, are you trying to come being good enough on your own to earn your way with God, or are you come, coming to God trusting in the covenant that he's made with you through his son? So I'm going to ask you to bow, and our deacons and our elders are going to make their way to the back, and our band is going to come up, and let's pray together. Father, we stop to remind ourselves of our sin. We stop to remind ourselves of the new covenant that you have made for us in Jesus. And Lord, as we take of the bread this morning, we are mindful that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we were straying from you, and that Jesus, the good shepherd, brought us back. Father, we stop to remind ourselves that we have been purchased and redeemed, not with silver and not with gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Father, as we take of the bread and as we drink of the cup this morning, we're not coming on our own merits or our own goodness, but we are simply coming to acknowledge that Jesus is the hero, that Jesus is our Savior. Father, and we thank you that you sent the greater Moses. You sent Jesus to seek us and to save us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.